Hey there, folks. Welcome to another episode of the Cracked Podcast, the podcast all about why being alive is more interesting than people think it is. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm the head of podcasting here at Cracked. I'm also known as Schmitty the Clam. I'm also known as Schmitty the Champ. And I am also, also thrilled to talk to our guest today. I'm always thrilled to talk to him. He writes for Cracked and the New York Times bestseller list as David Wong. His true name is Jason Pargin, and he is a wealth of extremely interesting thoughts on the modern life predicament that we all find ourselves in. Our previous two episodes together were based on an amazing double column that he did. Uh, This one draws on that, but also builds out a lot of new things too. And it is about this basic premise. The basic premise is how modern work is ruining your life. I know that sounds dark. There's there's a lot of fun to this episode today. There's a lot of very interesting things in it too. Uh, but we're using that dark phrasing because we're talking about something that not enough people are thinking about, and it can be life or death in a lot of situations. And I don't think it needs more setup than that. So we're going to dive right into it. Please sit back, or you know, either way, sit with excellent posture. It might be sitting back, but whatever's excellent posture, please do that. Uh, You can also take time to stretch whatever you're doing. And then ideally you're in a job where they don't suddenly stop paying you the minute you get up to stretch or or adjust your posture. Because that's a basic thing we could all use, I think. Couple seconds to stretch. Let's take them. And then here's this episode of the Cracked Podcast with Jason Pargin. I'll be back after we wrap up. Talk to you then. This is another one sort of sparked by that amazing double column you did, uh, but also a lot of other things we've found too. And what a thing that almost everyone's probably going through. This is one of the subjects that everybody talks about. Everyone complains about if their boss is a dick or their job is awful. And, you know, most of the world's sitcoms are about this subject. But no one talks about it as like an actual problem. Like when a politician talks about jobs, they're just talking about more jobs. Maybe they'll talk about pay or things like that. But in terms of bad bosses, insecure jobs, jobs that are just unpleasant to work and that are hell on your mental health, you never hear a politician running on a platform of, I'm going to fix the bad jobs. I'm going to make, I'm going to make the bad (laughs) jobs better. We like, we don't think of it as an issue. We kind of just accept that. Oh, well, it's your job. Of course, it's going to be a a waking nightmare. That's just the way (laughs) it is. And I like to think in the future, we'll come around on that just as we've come around on the harassment stuff where in the 1950s, it's like, well, of course, if you're a lady, you're, boss is going to chase you around his desk. That's just the way it is. And it's just a wacky joke in a sitcom. But now we look back at it and and say, well, you know, that was actually a human rights issue. And I, the stuff we're going to talk about today, I like to think in another generation, we'll think of the same way. That idea of being able to paradigm shift this so completely is amazing. Starting with the fact that it's extremely obvious that the quality of job you have is a huge impact on your mental and physical health. But we tend to only think in terms of, well, unemployment is, of course, bad for your health or bad for your mental health and all of that. But really, I think there's a lot of data out there that says that having a bad job or an insecure job is just as bad as being unemployed. Yeah, which which is very surprising to people, I think. Yeah, so there's a study that we're going to link to in the footnotes. It says, basically, among men, 
and this study was done in America, but I'm going to guess it's like this virtually everywhere in the developed world, that among men, the, the strongest predictor of well-being isn't health, relationships, family, it's job satisfaction by a large yeah. margin. Like everything else ties to that, no matter how much pop culture makes it sound like, well, if you have friends or if you have family, if you have hobbies, that's all that matters. Uh, that's really not true. Just mathematically, <laughs> however many hours a day you're working, if you if you're lucky enough to have like an eight hour work day, it doesn't matter. Once you then add on your commute, which you probably have statistically, and then the four hours after you get home that you're still in a bad mood from work. <laughs> and, <laughs> And the fact that, like, it may only take up half of your waking hours. Like, let's say you sleep eight hours, you've got eight hours at work and then eight hours to yourself, and then your commute eats up another, say, two hours, you've got six hours to yourself. That does not fully represent how much of your energy and your emotional energy and, and like, that it sucks up. Because a lot of people, when they get home at the end of that shift, they're just worthless. Like, this is why television exists, so, so that you can just sit, <laughs> right, up, sit in a chair or whatever, yeah, and, and you get, you know, until it's time to get dinner ready for the kids, if you got kids and you're just watching some mindless game show, it's because of how much of a toll that takes. So I think this is, it should be self-evident, but I think people are often surprised to hear it because they what they want to say as well, life is more than your job. Like you shouldn't tie your whole personal identity and your whole being to this thing you do for a paycheck. But your job is going to require that from you. So we want to start there. This matters as much as anything, as much as your religion, as much as anything. The quality of the job you have, not just the pay. But yeah. how satisfied you are in the job. And it is both a combination of the job not being actively detrimental to you, but also getting to feel constructive. This this study we're looking at surveyed 5,000 U.S. men, found that job satisfaction predicted their well-being by a large margin, or at least how they feel. And then it said that the strongest predictor of job satisfaction is whether men feel they are making an impact on their company's success. So it's really it's really a multi-layered thing. It's not just do you have a terrible pointy-haired boss from Dilbert or not. It's also do you get to go into that building or or remote thing and feel like you're making something and doing something. Yeah, and that's why you can get an entire podcast episode out of this because it is very complex. Yeah. It boils down to your relationship with your boss, how well they communicate with you. You know, obviously the pay and the benefits, that's part of it. That's that's the part that everybody already knows, though. You know, feeling like you're important to the company, feeling like you are secure is a huge part we're about to get into. Those things being missing is something where if you're making a decent paycheck, no one will feel sorry for you. And you'll feel like you can't leave if you, for instance, if this is a job that in America, we have this insane thing where your health benefits are tied to your employment and leaving means losing your health ben your health insurance. Yeah. If you leave your job, you can't go to the doctor. So this is one of those things where you could be in a situation that's paying the bills. It's allowing you to get mental health treatment where you would be have to pay out of pocket if you left the job or didn't have the job. Like you're basically trapped there and no one understands why you're suicidal. 
Because like, wow, he's got he's got work in this economy that should be grateful for that. It's like that's that's really just one part of the pie. There's sort of a pressure to feel like you at least have a job, even if it's not great, even if there's something wrong with it or detrimental to you. We're all also told that, hey, lots of people don't even have jobs. So so look at you. You've got that thing. Or we just have an impulse to not complain or, or not feel down. I feel like a lot of this stuff ends up tying into masculinity, too, Like especially this survey is of U.S. men, because there's that specific uh, just sort of cultural pressure to be a breadwinner, even, even though things have become more equal now. It's it's There's a billion layers to it. I'm so glad we're talking about it. The larger context is that in America, we ostensibly have a booming economy. Like if you look at the line graphs where it's got even wages at the lowest level at employment rates, labor force participation, going back to the crash of 2008, 2009, it's yeah. been a steady upward climb through the Obama years, through the, the Trump years. Like this is on paper, a very good economy. Yeah. Yet the suicide rate in America is skyrocketing. The rate of alcoholism is skyrocketing. The rate of drug abuse, opioid abuse is skyrocketing. All of the things that are tied into dealing with stress and managing stress, things like that, where you're self-medicating with alcohol, the number of people on antidepressants has continued to go up. There is something about the way we're doing it now. Recently, just in the time since the, you know, the recovery from that economic collapse that makes the economy look pretty good on paper but is grinding people into the ground. And I know that it's a lot of things. I fully believe that the type of work that we have replaced previous types of work with is part of it. The stereotypical millennial gig work, you know, whether you're talking about driving for Uber or any of the other million little things that come along where it's easy to get the work, in the grand scheme of things, like in terms of, you know, most of it doesn't require a degree or to be a member of a union or anything like that. It's easier. It's easy to get in, but you're at someone else's mercy in terms of the amount of work you get, you know, the number of hours you get, the rates, like there's news out that I think, you know, both Uber and Lyft are going to be dropping driver pay rates because neither of those companies are profitable. That mm. is like almost a designed form of psychological torture because you know one of the hardest things about being poor and the reason why it's so hard to get out and the reason why you die faster when you're poor and and everything else is worse is that it's objectively hard on a human brain and a human body to constantly have uncertainty to live in a state of not knowing, you know, the old phrase, like not knowing where your next meal is coming from, to, to not know how you're going to pay rent next month. You look at things like the rates that young people are, are having children has plummeted. Like they're not starting families. You know, they're not doing these things that people used to do by their early 20s and people reaching their 30s and they still haven't, you know, tried to buy a home or, or, or you know, get married or have children. And it's because they're in that state of uncertainty. And I don't right. think if you went back to the 1960s and have the type of job people would have back then, where I think you would find the work unpleasant if you were working as, I don't know, a salesperson on a, in a used car dealership or in a small shop putting upholstery on furniture, 
something like that. I don't think you would like that job if you were to go back to it because everyone is smoking. Everyone is telling racist jokes the whole time. But there was more of an element of you kind of get into a job and you just do it until you die. What you gain in knowing that that paycheck is probably going to be there has a value all its own. And that is with the modern economy almost completely gone. Like uh, the number of the people I know who have that, who know that the thing, like say they've got like a government job or they know that as long as the government exists, they'll have it. Boy, I can count them on one hand. If I hear somebody I know gets a job as a school teacher or other specific things, not that those are perfect jobs, but it's almost an outlier in my head. Like I hear they got that job and my head pings like, my God, they might have a pension. Like, what an amazing or they might have like some steady promise of working. What a what an astounding rare thing in the world. For instance, I know somebody who got a job working at a car factory here and I thought, oh, holy crap, that's like. That's like winning the lottery. Like, like that's people will <laughs> yeah. always need cars, and though, though that's good pay, and that's like I, I remember that's like union work or whatever. And they're like, oh no, I work for a temp agency. That's they contract that stuff out now. Oh god! And the moment the moment they have a slow sales month, they just send us home. Like <laughs> I can just not get any hours for two weeks because, like every company in America, what they want is flexibility. What they want is to be able to say, oh, we fell short this month or this quarter, so we'll just drop a bunch of these people off. You know, where once upon a time, like obviously if you're dealing with a union, you can't do that. You've right, got to, right. You've got to figure out a way. You've got to find something for them to do or they're going to keep getting paid at home or you're going to have to do something. But they've got a contract saying, no, you know, you, you've, you owe us certain things in the contract that you have to follow through on. Whereas the company's perfect you know, world is one where they can look at the reports that week and say, oh, we're down 10%, send 10% of the people home this week. And then if they bounce back, we'll bring it back. But from a human point of view, if you're that worker where you don't know if you're going to have a job next week or if you're going to have any, a paycheck next week, and you're just waiting to hear, always waiting to hear, but you can't leave because if you leave, then you might wind up with something worse. Right. Or if you're doing shift work where you're trying to, you know, if you're a server at a restaurant where they only work you 25 hours a week, but you never know which 25 hours. Maybe it'll be Thursday night and then maybe Wednesday morning and then maybe they need you Saturday at noon, but you can't go get another, a second job because this other one's, the hours are all over the place. You can't clearly tell them, okay, I'm free in the evenings because the restaurant wants you to be available whenever they need you, whenever someone calls in. So from the company's point of view, it makes sense that the economy is growing because from the company's point of view, this is great. Like, yeah, we love it to be that we can just let people go at a moment's notice and give them, you know, not have to compensate them or, or pay them or whatever, and just bring them back as needed from the people's point of view. That is like a form of psychological torture. I'm not trying to use that word like lightly, but it's, in terms of the stress of waking up every day and not knowing if you're going to get evicted from your apartment because you're waiting for someone else, like you have no control over your own fortunes because you're waiting for a stranger to tell you whether or not they, they need you that week. That's hell. I, I've been in that situation. That is awful. I'm 
thinking back to the episode we did with Kai Ristall, and, and in that one we touched on the idea that the the stock market is not the whole economy, like it only reflects certain specific successes of specific companies. And as you describe that, now I'm wondering how much of our stock market boom has simply been because workers are more squashable now. Like that that entire profit, that entire spike could just be because there are fewer unions than ever and more gig jobs than ever. And we've also got, uh, in terms of just stats on how many people are in this, Cornell and the Aspen Institute put together a study and some data and found that about a quarter of U.S. workers now participate in the gig economy, with 10.1% of them depending on it for primary income. Also, it's hard to count exactly how many people are in this because some participants also have full-time work, such as like a school teacher where there's not an enormous salary. Then they're also doing some Lyft driving on the side or some Airbnb renting at home to make that work. Between that and the kind of people doing restaurant shift work or other part-time work that's existed before these app-based companies, a ton of people are in this kind of uncertainty and uh, lack of labor rights that we're describing. It, it's an enormous uh, percentage of the population. Yeah, one in four. Yeah. <laughs> that's one in four people who are, and it's like, well, yeah, but that's just the ones who are participating in it. Only 10% are doing it for their primary income. But those 25% they're not doing it unless they have to. If that school teacher was making enough money from school teaching, they would not just drive Lyft for right. fun. Right. The people I know, I know three different people who drive, who do some sort of driving like that. If not for Lyft, then like Amazon now does a lot of their deliveries the same way. Like instead of using UPS, they just have, it's just somebody in their car. They just pull up in like their Toyota Corolla with your, package in the back seat and hand it to yeah, like that's sure. you know so they're or they're driving for the grocery stores around in a city they all do the thing where you can order and they'll have someone go to your shopping for you and they'll deliver it to your home or any kind of these delivery services like that that's all gig work that's all paid per delivery or per however they pay and they're all pushed to the absolute limit. Like they all have to race back and forth. They have to shop for the stuff as fast as possible. If they forget something and have to go back, it is a catastrophe. They all get rated on the app. And if they get anything less than a five-star rating, they are gone. And so they're yeah. just pushed and pushed and pushed. It's like they're in a, an environment that's so competitive that you would think it pays a lot of money because they're asked to go, you know, so fast and to work so fast and, and their rate, their performance ratings have to come in perfect and they have to be perfect every time. And it's like, wow, it, you're asking that much from that person. You must be really compensating them. Well, <laughs> no, no, they're not. It's the worst of both worlds. It's a low paying job that is somehow high stress. Yeah, and that is not the way it's supposed to to work. But it now works that way for a shocking number of people. And like you and I, I know we are skewed a little bit because we have friends that are all in the entertainment industry, right? So we have we know a lot of people who are trying to get staffed on the next TV show, or they're trying to uh, you know to sell a script or something. And that's feast or famine. You know that is literally gig work like actual gig, like they're trying to line up jobs. But it's funny because 
once upon a time, that was something that was kind of exclusive to aspiring entertainers lining up gigs and you know trying to line up shows at a comedy club. And it's like in the last decade, it's become the whole economy. Like the yeah. word gig used to kind of mean, you know, you're like, oh, we got, yeah, we got a gig playing, playing in a bar this weekend. We're going to make 400 bucks where it's like now that's kind of the position people have been put in only without the dreams of stardom <laughs> like, <laughs> like without oh like, Hey, somebody from the record label is going to be out there tonight. It's like, well, no, it's just, it's all the stress of that only without the reward. And tell you what, the the writers and actors and directors of that group also have solid unions. Maybe it's because they got in this position before everybody else. But the Writers Guild, as we speak, is doing a whole bunch of really good organizing on behalf of all its members. And, and uh, you know, Uber Lyft drivers don't have that by any stretch. Yeah. And they're organizing for the same reason, which is that if the studios had their way, these writers would be utterly disposable they would have no responsibility, you know, to like keep people on staff or like they, they yeah. want from their point of view, it's just flexibility. Like it's just, well, it's just smart business, but people are not just supposed to be just cogs in a machine. You can swap in and out based on what you need the machine to do right now. Like this is the part that gets lost where you're focused entirely on we must grow. We must get a return on this investment. We must go bigger, faster, expand as fast as possible. It's like, yeah, but if you look out on the map and you see that people are killing themselves at record number in record numbers, and it's not just because of poverty or unemployment, because, you know, supposedly those employment numbers look, look better, then there's something else going on. And you've got to say, okay, what is this growth coming at the expense of? Yeah, absolutely. And also in terms of numbers, we'll we'll footnote quite a bit of things about just rising rates of those things, depression, suicide, et cetera. We've also got a limited amount of stats on people who are unemployed fully are showing uh, stronger mental health than many people who have part-time gig work. For one thing, like journals we looked at and other sources, a lot of them simply say there's not enough studies of this. We'll link we'll link a whole article in the journal Industrial and Organizational Psychology from March of 2016, which basically just says we need a lot of studies on these different things. There's no no actual study in it. It's just let's work on it. By the numbers we've got, there's a University of Manchester study from the UK that tracked over a thousand unemployed British people from 2009 to 10 and found negative outcomes in those who found stressful, poorly paid, and or unstable jobs to the point that they were worse off than those who stayed unemployed completely. There's also a study from the Australian National University in Canberra that found that unemployed people showed similar mental health level to people working poor quality jobs, and uh, the people in the worst jobs had worse mental health quality, and they graded that on their stress and and, uh, the amount of control they had over their job, job security, and whether or not the pay was fair. So all those gig jobs scored poorly on that. And then in general, the European Working Conditions Survey uh, found that there are positives for workers who can take an hour or two flexibly out of their job to, you know, like care for their child if they're sick or or deal with an errand that needs doing. That kind of thing often gets raised as a a benefit and a positive of gig work and the and these part time app jobs. But the thing is, as as one person consulting for that council said, the flexibility to 
deal with something for an hour or two is something you can get at a good full-time job too. Like it's not, it's not really an actual benefit of those gig things. It's just a thing they have that regular jobs have too. If you're lucky enough to have like a reasonable job. Right. And the difference is that you're still going to get paid if you've got a good job. Yeah. If you have to take time off, you have time off. Whereas if you're doing gig work, if you're just doing deliveries, if you're not making the deliveries, you're not getting paid. Yeah, exactly. If you're not driving, Uber's not going to pay you. So if you fall off a ladder at home and you have to go into the hospital for six weeks and then recuperate for another two weeks after that, those two months, Uber's not unless I've I'm grossly mistaken in how Uber operates, they're not going to pay you for those two months because you are not an employee. You're right. You're giving people rides and splitting the money with Uber. So that's where the uncertainty comes from because everyone is one slip and fall away from not being able to work. So, you know, if you've got a job that actually has, you know, sick time and things like that, then, then you're covered for a little while at least in the gig economy, you're just at the mercy of circumstance, which again, companies love it. Yeah. If they don't have to pay. Why, why would I want to pay somebody who's not here or working? But if you are in a country and an economy made up of human beings and the des- it is a system designed to make human lives better, then you, you <laughs> need to try to find a way to make sure that people have that security, which is, I think, highly, highly underrated. Or rather, yeah. the effect insecurity has is highly underrated because, as you just mentioned, very difficult to study, very little data on it. Yeah, the couple of things we've got are from Europe and Australia, even. like I, We couldn't really find much U.S. data other than how many people are doing this kind of work. Nobody's looking at like how they're doing. And it's it's a little bit because these app, these app-based companies are relatively new. Uh, it must also be because people haven't looked that closely at people who work shifts in restaurants and retail and other spaces that are kind of like that, too. But there's there's so much more we could study for it. And uh, it would be very helpful to, like we said, you know, one in four people and, and probably growing who are working this way. Yeah. And I feel like this is just one way that the economy and I know part of it is not just the collapse of 2008, that, that it's part of it is globalization and that sort of thing that, you know, if you have fewer high paying manufacturing jobs or mining jobs, the what you think of as like the blue collar work of the fifties and sixties that by nature, anything in the service industry, anything like that is just going to be less secure, but we've got to figure that out because that type of work is not going away. Using technology to like connect people with tasks that need done, whether that's giving somebody a ride or bringing a package to their house, that's all great. Like that's, that's a good use of technology because if there's somebody who's happy to do it, and it's something they can do, and it's a way to earn some money that's flexible on the side. That's all fine, but you have to have a minimum obligation to those people if they're doing work for you. And what's happening is you're going to get an economy that's only going to get more and more like this with time because there's not much motivation. From from the company's end, this is objectively a better way to do business. 
for them right. to not have any responsibility to you because it's like, well, no, this is great. Our investors love it because they know we're not going to be saddled with a bunch of costs. If we have to let people go, they know that we're flexible, yeah, quote unquote, or we're agile is a, a good word that they use in the PowerPoint presentation. <laughs> like, we're, you know, we can, we can dump those costs at a moment's notice if we have to. It's like, yeah, but those aren't costs. Those are human beings who have children. This system is to support human beings, which is why we have a society. Like it's not, it doesn't just exist for its own sake. We have a society in order so that people can thrive and or whatever. If we've decided scientifically, and it looks more and more like we are, that uncertainty is just ruinous to your mental and physical health. I feel like that's got to be a part of the conversation because the economy is going the other way. The economy is heading strongly toward more and more like flexibility on the company's end and less and less certainty on the employee's end. And that's a trend that I don't hear that many people talk about as a thing that needs to be reversed. Now, I definitely hear all of my friends talking about how stressful their situation is. That's all I hear. You don't hear anybody running their presidential campaign on, hey, Forget about income levels for a moment. Like, you know, the school teacher who drives for Uber on the side, put those two together. That's a decent looking income on the taxes. But in terms of what this person's schedule looks like and what their yeah. family life looks like and what their mental health looks like, the cost for that to make that income is no one's measuring that part because it's difficult. It's difficult to study. And also, for the most part, no one cares. That's also true. And then in the way people are talking about it, I feel like all all my internet nerd friends are talking about socialism these days. And it seems like it's mainly because socialism feels to them like a, a big, just sort of blunt way to fix all of it. And I feel like for for people who are opposed to that kind of socialism, they should be talking about other fixes, if not that. You know what I mean? Like, it seems like that's that's steering a lot of the discourse in general, wanting to fix this some way. And I, I feel like people are fighting about whether socialism is good or not, more than they're talking about just whether we can, we can uh, protect workers in a general way uh, of any kind. We could have a whole separate episode about that. The, the, the yeah. term they're using for socialism, they're using that word because for a generation, every time someone has asked for a dollar from the government, we've called it socialism. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, and so whereas, you know, once upon a time, Richard Nixon wanted government health care. Today, that's that's socialism. Like there are things that both sides of the aisle used to support that today we call socialism. And so when the kids say they want socialism, it's like, yeah, it's because they've been told that literally anything that is a involves money from the government is socialism. So it's like, right. well, yeah, I want I want that. I want <laughs> I want to know that there is a baseline that I can hit if everything goes wrong in my life, that there's a certain level where I will stick where I've still can see the dentist. I can still go, I can still get my mental health care meds. I can still go, you know, get a checkup at the doctor. I can still buy food. I can still have a, a roof over my head. If that's socialism, what we used to just call the social safety net then yeah. then fine that that's that's the thing that i want it's it's less about a theory of well no all all private property should be seized by the government it's more i want the things that 
labor unions, you know, won victories they won decades ago and that have been slowly getting undone since basically since the Reagan era. Yeah, absolutely. A few months back, we did an episode with Ian Milheiser about the history of the Supreme Court. Uh, The big, big upshot is that in terms of labor rights as a person in the United States, you, for practical purposes, don't really have any in a fundamental way. We do have a constitution. How it functions is a product of the Supreme Court's practical interpretation of it. If you're in a job where you have a lot of protections and rights and benefits, it's because they've been negotiated. It's not because anyone's been been looking out for them beyond that. And so I, I think that's why a lot of people are excited about you know, labor organizing and the the version of socialism we just talked about where it's a basic safety net. But throughout the Supreme Court's history in particular, it doesn't really see humans as having any labor rights in the country. Uh, there was a big case called Lochner v. New York in 1905, where the Supreme Court said that workers needed to have the full freedom to uh, work more than 60 hours per week and sleep on the dirty floor of the bakery they worked in. Uh, because any law protecting them from that was a, a limitation on freedom. We'll probably footnote a lot of the rest of this, but we've got cases here where in uh, 1923, the Supreme Court said minimum wage laws were unconstitutional. That was overturned more than a decade later. There was also a, a case in 1918 where the Supreme Court said laws against child labor were unconstitutional. That wasn't overturned until 1941, more than 20 years later. And then in recent cases, there's one called Janus v. AFSCME, where the Supreme Court overturned 40 years of precedent and said that public unions can't collect dues from their members, uh, which basically means they can't exist. Another case in 2018, Epic Systems Court v. Lewis, the Supreme Court said that private companies can force new employees to sign away most of their collective bargaining rights. Uh, They have to negotiate one-on-one instead of collectively being something like a union. So if you if you want to have rights as a worker, you have to uh, kind of go and get them in our particular country. Right. And it ties exactly into the kind of paradox we've been talking about, because what they're saying is if you have a company who they need some really unpleasant job done and they can only they're saying, look, we can only pay two dollars an hour. Like, forget about minimum wage. Like, that's all the money we've got. Right. If there is a person out there who says, say they're homeless, and like, well, yeah, I'll take two bucks an hour to, you know, to come clean your garbage or whatever. Yeah, that's uh, I can I can buy cigarettes with that money. What they're saying is, in theory, neither of those people are being forced to do that. And so, who are we as the government to get in between that person and that company? That if no one wanted to do it for that price, then they would be forced to offer more. And that if a person wants to do it, who are we to tell them? They can't. It's a little bit like every year, you know, we do this thing in America now where after Thanksgiving on midnight that night, they stores open for Black Friday. Yeah. This insane tradition where at two in the morning we go and line up and get into like fist fights for like televisions or things like that. And there's always this argument in my social circle. There is every year saying, that's disgusting. You should not be making employees work at midnight after Thanksgiving. There's no reason for it. It's a, it's a dumb stunt. No one enjoys that. Like, let these people enjoy the evening with their family. Because obviously, if they have to go to work at midnight, then they've got to like sleep during the day. Like, it's it ruins the holiday. Yeah. And then what the argument from the other side is, 
if this person wants to work that shift and wants that extra money, who are you to tell them they can't? Who are you to tell them, no, you, you have to stay home out of our act of mercy is to not let you work these hours you want to work. And so then they're just out the paycheck because the store wouldn't normally be open at those hours. It's just extra money. It's an extra shift they can work. Obviously yeah. that's ignoring the fact that if you're doing everything right, there should be no one in a position to want to work for two bucks an hour. And if you're doing everything right, those employees shouldn't need to work at midnight on Thanksgiving. So what you're doing is you're putting them in a situation where their, their circumstances kind of require them to have to do that. And then boasting that you gave them the right to do the thing that circumstances forced them to do, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Like in an ideal society, they, they shouldn't, that demand shouldn't be there. Like you're saying, well, all I'm doing is satisfying the demand. Then it's like, yeah, but if things are going right, it's kind of like lottery tickets. It's like, well, if somebody wants to spend their paycheck on lottery tickets, they should have the freedom to do that. Right. It's like, well, but if you've got a society where you've put a whole bunch of lower income people and poorly educated people in a position where they, they think that's their only chance at like financial success, your mistake happened there, not at the buying the lottery ticket phase. So yeah, I get what you're saying that if people want to buy the tickets, let them buy the tickets, that they have the freedom to throw their money away on this thing they're clearly not going to win. But in a perfect society, you would have educated those people and like how odds work. And, <laughs> and they would not be in a, in that position where that's they have so little hope in their life that that's like the only thing that, that they gives them some, that they want to get up in the morning is a chance to win the lottery someday. We do have a streak of, of thought in the country where people are like extremely pro freedom without recognizing any of the context or any of the actual things going on on planet earth, such as the big power imbalance between basically all companies and workers. Like people need work to have food and not die. And companies can kind of cherry pick whoever will do it cheapest unless we have laws protecting workers. And I wish we didn't have currently at least two Supreme Court justices who don't see that imbalance. Apparently, Clarence Thomas has been saying since the 90s that we should go back to Lochner v. New York type policies where the bakers were not protected from from sleeping on the floor of the bakery. And then recent Neil Gorsuch opinions uh, echo a lot of those same things. So, so we could use people who who see that there's uh, that kind of thing where it's not a great situation if people are working for $2 an hour and then spending it on lottery tickets. Yeah, or like the, you mentioned earlier, the child labor laws. I've heard many libertarians talk about, well, if, if somebody's got like a 12-year-old who is getting into trouble and they, you know, they figure like, well, this will give them something to do. It'll oh, teach boy. them some responsibility. And they'll make some money on the side. Like, why should we get in the way of that? You know, because <laughs> if the alternative is that they're getting into crime or they're getting getting into drugs or whatever, it'll teach them a work ethic, blah, blah, blah. Like, ideally, you should not be in a position where a family needs their 12-year-old to make money in order to make ends meet. And you shouldn't be in a position where there's literally nothing else for that kid to do to learn life lessons or to have role models or whatever. It, like yeah. if you've built your society correctly, 12 year olds should not be entering the workforce 
and, you know, joining the rat race with the rest of us and like counting down the days until they can retire. Like you should, you should have a childhood. (laughs) (laughs) You just say, well, if a child wants to work, who are we? Who is the evil government to tell them they can't? Will you crush this child's dreams when all this child (laughs) wants is to work in an office? It's like, well, okay, you're relying on pure theory and you're excluding the reality, which is the type of kids who are going to wind up in this work and what it deprives them of, you know, the experiences they should be having as kids. Like you're not looking at them as human beings. You're looking at them as cogs in a machine and humans are more than that. Apparently I should meet more libertarians because I've, I've only heard that viewpoint from the fictional character, Ron Swanson on Parks and Recreation, when he talks about like working in two different canneries when he was a kid. I, I, I'm amazed there are people actually saying that stuff. And also I believe you because the, the world's insane. And like the stuff with the unions, you you said that things like the five day work week and the weekend, like those were earned by unions and you said they negotiated them. They negotiated them and then also there was violence. Yes. A lot of people died. You can go read up about the coal miner strikes where they would break the strike by just having Pinkertons come in and shoot everyone with machine guns. Like this was not like, oh, we'll all sit down at a table. They got to the point where they could sit down at a table. Right. But those rights were not won easily. Yeah, even a, a relatively tame story we have here that we'll link. The Fair Labor Standards Act was passed in 1938, and it was mostly catalyzed by uh, the first major strike by auto workers in 1936, uh, which was at a General Motors plant where the workers went on strike It was in the Michigan winter, and so GM turned off the heat, trapped them in the building for the most part, and then eventually violently attacked them. And GM only failed to break the strike because both Michigan's governor and President Franklin Delano Roosevelt refused to send in the military, which was the common thing before that. Usually the government would just send in the military to help a company break a strike. So it was it was that kind of action on top of the other violence you just talked about that that got us a lot of these labor rights. And so it's real irritating to see laws that take them away described as right to work. That's a, that's a thing that comes up a lot in the news. And it's a, a really positive framing of, of losing those things. When you said the words General Motors, like a lot of listeners probably don't know what you're talking about because of course that company was was shamed out of existence that very year and never made another dollar based on how they treated those workers (laughs) right they immediately went broke and uh (laughs) yeah you'd have to google them general motors is what it was called crazy that someone (laughs) thought that they could survive such a scandal (laughs) Yeah, we all ended up traveling by bicycle and blimp from then on, and uh, that was it. Yeah. (laughs) Support for today's show comes from Green Chef. Green Chef is a USDA-certified organic company with meal plan options that include paleo, vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, Mediterranean, heart-smart, lean and clean, keto, gluten-free, and omnivore, Alex, that was such a long list. Exactly. They do everything, and it's great. And with Green Chef, it's easy to eat well and discover new recipes every week that you will love to cook. Enjoy clean ingredients you can trust, seasonally sourced for peak freshness, as well as recipes that are quick and easy with step-by-step instructions, chef tips, and photos to guide you along. There's even pre-made measured sauces, dressings, and spices so you can get more flavor in less time. 
And I have really enjoyed receiving a box of healthy, friendly food uh, that I wouldn't otherwise think to make. Like Honestly, part of the, the, the trick of home cooking is just coming up with something to do. And if you can get all the ingredients like that straight to your door from people with a mind to have as many organic things as they can and as many healthy, healthy vegetable kind of things as they can, that's the way to go. I had a little bit of paleo thing with a little bit of fish on it. I don't even know how to describe it. I just know it was very tasty and I think you'll like it too. So for $50 off your first box of Green Chef, go to greenchef.us slash cracked. That's greenchef.us slash cracked for $50 off your first box of Green Chef. We've got present day things here about uh, the impact of having a shitty boss and what that will do to you. This is, I believe, the least talked about factor in quality of life in America right now, which is just, do you get along with your boss? And I say least talked about, and again, you're like, well, every sitcom is about this. The office is about this, you know, parks and rec is like the opposite of this, like having a good hearted boss, like, like every workplace sitcom is about, you know, Mr. Burns on the Simpsons. Like, yeah, but it stays in the realm of sitcoms because we just accept that having a crazy, awful boss is just one of those things. Like, of course your boss is a psychopath. That's probably how they got the job. And this is another thing where I would like to think that in the future, when we watch sitcoms like The Office or something like that, that it will seem like something from another world. Because like, well, no company would let a Michael Scott really be like that weird and violating people's. And I'm talking about the early seasons when before he became like the lovable character in the show when he's more based on David Brent. Right. Where it was like his little weird you know, affectations and stuff were making people's lives miserable because all of his personality flaws, you're just a prisoner to them. Like you, it affects everything about your life, not just because you're there for eight hours a day, but again, because your entire financial fortune, your entire social status, everything's tied to that job. And you may love the work. You may love the paycheck. You, You know, you may love everything, but having a dick boss, and having a dick of a boss, we've got a study here, can kill you. And in terms of measuring it, like you said, we don't have a lot of numbers, but this is uh, yet another European study. Thank you, Europe. But it's written up in the Washington Post. A Swedish study found strong association between coronary heart disease and bad bosses. They also found that it was compounded by working for the boss longer, uh, which suggests even more so that there's a connection there. I don't know that most bosses fully internalize the impact they have. And then if you've got an employee who's just sort of your whipping boy or somebody you like to, you know, kind of yell at or whatever you think they're, they're never given the role. And so you're always on him. I've worked for people who I don't think they grasped what that means and how hard that is for people. Because again, it's not just something you said, it's you're dangling their livelihood over them. It's another power imbalance where the impact of it, many bosses do not realize quite that they have that much power. And then there are also probably some great bosses out there who do recognize that power and then really, really stress about it. For a few people, probably cuts the other direction where they realize how much they have in their hands and then and then their stress is all messed up because because they're worried about doing it well. 
And let me note that that study you cited is from Sweden. Sweden, oh. <laughs> the home of the of the lavish right. welfare state where you presumably, <laughs> you know, you know that if you lose that job, you quit that job, you're going to be in a better spot than if the same thing happened to you in America. Where in America, like I'm asking you to picture a, a single parent with, let's say they have an autistic child at home who needs expensive care through their health care plan. And so you have a very angry boss or a very eccentric boss or a very unreasonable boss constantly threatening to fire you and thus threatening to take health care away from your autistic toddler. So you have to put up with it because the whole thing is with the way we've tied health care to employment, things like that. We are now aware of what it is with, you know, sexual harassment and you can say, well, like, why did the the woman or, or the guy, whoever the victim was, why they put up with it? And it's like because they couldn't lose their health care. They couldn't lose their medication. They couldn't lose, you know, if the abuse is not coming in the form of them creeping on you, but is coming in the form of them insulting you or raging at you or just setting impossible goals, things they know you can't actually do. It's the same type of trauma because you can't escape that situation you're you're being coerced in both cases as you say that i do also see a, a little bit of a silver lining in that those similar forms of being a bad boss like uh, sexual harassment or there are things that we have made some progress on and maybe maybe this can be one of the next things you know like like there are other ways that american work has improved culturally so so how about this one let's do it The next part we're going to talk about is why that's a little bit of a challenge, though, because we still see like the really hard charging, hyper aggressive boss as being like kind of cool, like the the Dr. House boss who's a sarcastic jerk, but he gets results. He's the best at what he does. Oh, yeah. And I still feel like you can find entire books or business books, bestsellers, that are from like the Gordon Ramsay type personality where it's, I'm going to get in your face. I'm going to yell and scream at you, but I'm just trying to get the best out of you. I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to get you to perform at your best. It's definitely celebrated as the exact way to do things. We'd, we'd also picked out a recent situation in sports where uh, Michigan state men's basketball coach, Tom Izzo was screaming and advancing on a player in a in a timeout to the point where other people had to physically restrain him and basically everyone including the player he was doing this to publicly approved of it and said that's just that's just how young men are molded and that's that's the way we need things and you see that through pretty much all of sports culture which is another uh, masculinity thing on, on top of masculinity things if we don't stop letting people like uh, former coach Bobby Knight grab kids by the neck or run them out of the program and not get punished, uh, if we just keep letting that happen in these highly public places, it seems like it trickles down to regular workplaces too. I'm looking at examples where people lost control, where you've got a coach, you know, a 50 some year old coach who is a multimillionaire and then you've got a kid who's playing who's 19 and playing basketball for you for free. Yeah. And you get so angry at him that you have to be physically restrained from it what it looked like you wanted to physically attack him. That's not a tactic. That's you losing your head. 
So to come out later as everyone did and talk about, well, no, he just, he's tough on these kids. And it's like, okay, I'm not referring to him raising his voice or shouting at someone he thinks he's not getting through to, because I will admit there are some people who have trouble understanding like the urgency of a thing, unless they hear you, you get upset by it. Like if you calmly say, Hey, the, the office is on fire because you remained calm. When you said it, they'll assume it's no big deal. They need to hear you freak out. And then, Oh, the office is on fire. So I get that there's a place for showing emotion and saying, look, if you can't master the pick and roll or whatever stupid thing he had done wrong, you're never going to achieve your goals. Like, like trying to impress upon him how important this is. That's not what this was. That's not what Bobby Knight grabbing a kid around the neck is. That is an adult losing his head in a way that became dangerous. Right. And then acting like it was a strategy. And, you know, when you, like Steve Jobs was a legendary abusive boss and everyone's like, yes, but he changed the world. And my argument would be you can hold people to a very high standard And you can try to impress upon people emotionally, like what this project means, like all of our jobs depend on this being just right. And so I need you all really to be motivated. That's one thing. If you're walking around belittling people, insulting people in front of other people, I would say that Steve Jobs succeeded despite that, not because of it. I, I think that people like Gordon Ramsay, it's like, okay, yeah, under, please understand he's, a TV show performer, him acting like that in the kitchen did not make him a better chef. It did not make anyone who works for him better chefs. It just made them really nervous and made them screw up because you've got this guy screaming, you know, British insults into your ear. That doesn't make anyone better. That's not the same as just holding them to a high standard. I know like this is what the movie whiplash was about. And it's like, yeah, but that guy and the movie never really challenges him on this. It, that guy, the music teacher in that movie for people who have not seen it, it's about this very abusive music teacher. And his whole thing is like, this is how I get the best out of people. And yeah. there are ways to press people to be the best musician they can be without screaming homophobic slurs in their ear they would love to make it sound like that's all part of the same package. It's really not. History (laughs) is full of people who were very good motivators and teachers and everything else, including coaches who never did that stuff. I feel like a lot of those things, they almost have sort of a military vibe to them, like a, a full metal jacket drill sergeant kind of vibe. But also pretty much every job we've described is not life or death. Right. Like nobody needs to be screaming, except maybe at a military context or I don't know, surgeons aren't screaming, but medicine, that would be a a time to be intense. You know, this is mostly coaching basketball or designing iPhones or (laughs) some other situation where we can all chill the hell out for a second. That also extends to politics where we don't need to be complete maniacs. And and I feel like in particular, this fits how you described that Tom Izzo situation where It's not an actual tactic or strategy or method. It's just somebody losing control and just being an asshole. Right before Senator Amy Klobuchar announced that she was running for president, uh, the New York Times put out a bunch of reporting from a lot of sources 
basically describing her as, as the worst boss in Washington. The main anecdote is that she was on a trip in 2008 and an aide had brought her a salad, but no fork. And they were like, ah, I'm sorry, I forgot a fork. And what she did is she pulled out a comb from her bag and started eating the salad with her comb, presumably making the staffer just watch her eat a salad with a comb, then berates the staffer about the whole thing and then gives them the comb and says, go clean up my comb. The, the other stories about her describe a lot of people who don't want to say anything about her but have stuff and like made sure to do a bunch of cover your ass saving emails kind of things when they left. Apparently an incredibly bad person to work for, but also someone who's just somehow still a candidate. I, I don't understand how uh, this one particular person gets to keep on doing town halls and stuff with this out there. But I, I guess I do understand because we let people be bad bosses. That's why. Yeah, she used to throw objects at people, I guess, and like binders and stuff. And yeah, all of that, again, you can have an avalanche of people saying, well, politics, you know, that's not, uh, this isn't playtime. This isn't preschool. You know, this is for adults and grownups. Like, no, she's acting like she's in preschool. This right. is this is how a child is how a child acts. This is someone who cannot manage their emotions. This is someone who cannot manage their impulses. And maybe someone like her, she just thought in this male world of politics, like this is how you got to be. You got to be the, you got to be crazy. You got to make people think you're, you're nuts. But I, I just think we're rewarding a certain personality disorder. (laughs) It's just, (laughs) it's someone who is so scared of failure. They work relentlessly to succeed, but also they're in such a panic all the time that they just can't contain their emotions. And so they just lash out at people. And, you know, I don't doubt that Steve Jobs was probably terrified of not succeeding. He was probably terrified that the Apple II was not going to go over. And so everything had to be perfect. And he probably, you know, kept himself up all night. And so he was probably just passing on his own angst. I do that. I'm sure I do. But yeah. that's a flaw. Right. Well, also that that fear you bring up, I would imagine has a lot to do with it in a lot of cases and and fear is universal, so I'm I'm sure that's a thing. Like in in these Klobuchar stories, uh, there's one part where it describes her going out of her way to sabotage the employment prospects of staffers who are trying to leave, like she would go to their potential future bosses and speak badly of them and try to wreck that, which is probably based in fear and trying to just keep together the staff she has. There's also an email she sent to them where she said, quote, we are becoming a joke and it is making me a joke, end quote. And it was about her, just things she was seeing on Twitter about their campaigns. So she's badgering them about uh, them hurting her reputation and who she gets to be. And also in America, I think we have a thing where when people get caught, I guess I would say, they, people get found out as managing this way, they they don't totally apologize. In her case, she was asked about all of these stories, and she said that she simply has high expectations. Uh, she said, quote, am I a tough boss sometimes? Yes. Have I pushed people too hard? Yes. And then went on to say that, uh, you know, there are also a lot of stories of her being a good boss. But that's not even totally an apology. That's basically saying, I'm sorry I work so hard, which is like kind of kind of complimenting yourself. And and I I really don't mean to pick on just her. And there's also a lot of gender politics in 
how we process any story like this. But I, I think that's very yes. common among these bosses. Part of that story is the deal is that the fact that we don't accept that from women in the way that we accept it from from men. Yes. Yeah. Whereas with with men, it's like, well, he's the tough guy. He's the coach. He's the drill sergeant. But a woman is just, well, she's bitchy or she's petty or she's whatever. Look, these people are all narcissists and they all can't conceptualize that the rest of the world exists and that everyone <laughs> everyone is there to help them be the only thing that exists so it, this is very common she is not by no means is she unique in this kind of behavior i have worked for people who lost control like that sometimes yeah. I was lucky enough where they were the type they would apologize later because they admitted like I you know I lost my cool. Like you saw me this is very embarrassing. You saw me in a moment of weakness because I, I freaked out about this about this contract we've got coming up and I, I lost my head. I, I hope you can forgive me. Like they knew they knew that they had that was not their shining moment. They knew not to apologize with well, I'm sorry if I demanded too much excellence from you. <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that I have too high of standards for myself and that sometimes I'm too excellent for this world. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to what we had previously talked about, like a certain percentage of these very bad bosses that drive people to depression or alcoholism or whatever in America specifically, yeah. I'm convinced that... The way we lionize someone like Gordon Ramsay or any of these famous CEOs like Steve Jobs, and this is what good leadership looks like and to this day. To this day, you can have seminars and stuff about you know why you've got to you know you, you can't treat people with kids' gloves. You've got to get in there and confront them about their whatever. I suspect that is the most common type of bad boss out there, and I once more look forward to the day when we see that as shameful or something that was in the past, or there's a very specific type of personality type who responds to that. Uh, and then everyone else, it just makes their lives a, a nightmare. I don't think it makes them better. I think it encourages ass covering, right? right? Because everyone's scared of making the boss mad. So when a mistake is made and say, instead of, acting on it quickly, all of the energy is dedicated to making sure you are not the one the boss gets mad at. Hiding your mistakes, trying to shift your, you know, blame onto other people. And it, you know, becomes all this backstabbing because no one wants to become the target of the boss's ire because that's one thing those bad bosses all have in common is that all they want to know is who's to blame. Who can I yell at? Instead of saying, how can we solve this problem together? How can we make sure it doesn't happen again? Like, how can we fix it as an organization? They love to call people to the carpet. They, you know, they love to yell at people. They love to fire people. They, they love to be in that position either because they're just sadists or because they think that's what being a good boss is all about. It's about yelling at people and making them work harder or whatever. And I got to say, that doesn't make me work harder. 
It it's yeah. makes me look for a different job and it makes me want to just do just enough so that I don't get yelled at. But I'm certainly not going to take bold risks in that environment because if I screw up, then, you know, the boss is going to have to be physically restrained from attacking me. So I'm not going to try to experiment or try to, you know, to take chances because you're so scared of being the, the focus of the boss's attention. And especially if the stuff about Klobuchar is right. And then if someone tries to leave or whatever, that she would become vindictive about it. Well, hell that's now you've got something that's going to follow you. This person is going to try to blacklist you. Yeah. So who, who works well in that environment? But if you've got literally millions of bosses, supervisors, managers who have that attitude that's affecting tens of millions of lives of people under them and affecting the productivity of those workplaces. It's affecting how good they are doing their jobs. You know, if you're making life-saving equipment or something that if it fails, it could kill somebody, that somebody is scared to point out a mistake that's being made because they're afraid that it will come off like it's their fault because maybe they had a hand in it. And so they would prefer to just cover it up it seems like common sense that that's a bad way to manage. Yeah. You would think among the many reasons to not manage this way, it's another one where we, we are real short on data because no one studied it, but it it is such a productivity suck, especially with like you'd pointed out that maybe a few people benefit from this kind of really angry management and it can be a tactic for them. That's probably a reason some people do it because like in some case, some spot it worked, but it extra extra doesn't work for like the advanced knowledge work service economy kind of thing that that we've progressed into the last few decades like you can't you can't receive that kind of feedback and then do some kind of complex thinky task very well you need to like go sit down and have a snack and a coffee and like pull it together but these managers go back into their office thinking that they've really straightened out the ship when actually somebody basically needed to call in sick for a few hours to to recover but that's also where it ties into the type of economy we have, too. Because if you were a union worker on a factory floor, if that guy yells in your face, you know, he can yell all he wants, but ultimately, if he wants to fire you, whatever, he's going to be talking to your union rep. Like, yeah. you've got some protection there. In a gig economy where everyone can be let go at a moment's notice, the amount that you have to just take and the amount of power that person holds over you, it amplifies all of these problems because the insecurity makes all of it worse. Having your health insurance tied to it makes all of it worse. Your ability, everything they do is amplified now. You pulled a lot of amazing stuff here about why the the shitty people who tend to manage this way tend to become the bosses. I think that's, we, we touched on it a bit with the Peter Principle kind of thing where David Brent's an amazing salesman, so then he becomes the manager and doesn't know how to do that. But there, it seems like there's a lot of forces that make the wrong people the boss for reasons that people probably think are positive. They probably think it's merit-driven and a very good way to go. A lot of it just comes down to we have a cult of the brash badass, the person who's very loud and confident and the way they talk and the way they stand and they take up a lot of space and they're just, they just seem like leaders. They just seem like they, they, they must know what they're talking about. Surely no one could be super confident and also stupid. 
<laughs> it, so we have this mental, this evolutionary flaw where when you see confidence, you see somebody striding around like they own the place, you want to defer to them. So yeah, you want somebody who seems confident, seems on top of things. And the flaw in society is that the super loud jerk, we mistake that for for competence with an M for like, they must know what they're doing. And those people get promoted all the time because they're so impressive in interviews. And so, yeah, if you are picking from your sales team, the person to lead the sales team, you may start with the ones who have the best numbers, but at the interview stage, it's the ones who've just got, got that little extra something. They seem like a good, a good leader. And a lot of times all you're doing is picking the narcissist. You're picking the person who is self-obsessed, they're image obsessed. They're obsessed with projecting power and confidence and everything else about themselves. They're hitting on all the ladies. They've, you know, they're loud and, and they laugh a lot and they seem like they're comfortable on their own skin. And we have a bias toward that type of person all the way up the ladder, <laughs> like we, and they can, <laughs> a very confident narcissist who is very mediocre in every other aspect of their life can make it very far in America. And I, I know I just said America, it, you could easily say it's like that everywhere in the world. That may be true. I don't live in those other countries. I am only going to indict America on this podcast we did a recent episode with the author Caroline Criado Perez, and one one thing she found in a whole amazing book about how the world tends to kind of tilt toward being designed for men, but it's that in the tech industry in particular, it's very heavily male because men will tend to hire other men who have similar attributes to them. So like also everyone will wear that hoodie that everyone wears in tech because, oh, now we're used to each other. It seems like that also contributes to this situation where the whole chain of command is confident people because a few confident people got there first and then they hire more confident people and and you end up in a cycle unless you luck into somewhere where the culture's different. And it's hard to create a good culture that isn't based on that. If there was like a startup that's was started with by like a dozen guys who are all engineers and they've got some great idea for an app and you're like the first woman who works there. It's not that there'll be like a no girls allowed sign on the building. It's just that you're stepping into a culture that was designed by the first few people who were in the door and they all happen to be tech bros and they hired other tech bros And everything they visualize in terms of what a competent engineer looks like is a tech bro. And that includes what they do in their off hours, includes what their hobbies are, even though they don't think of themselves as having established a culture, because after all, we just hired the best. It's like, well, no, you're a tech bro. And you kind of, you only see other tech bros as being the best. Like your idea of what is the best is just other people like you. Yeah. Trying to intentionally change the culture of a company so that it's not hostile or, or isn't just favoring who's the most cool of the bros, that is difficult and it is painful and it can make a lot of people unhappy. 
not just in companies, because we've got here a lot of workplaces that are strictly segregated by gender in a in a purely informal way, and, and I guess all of them, I think. You found that 99% of oil well workers, roofers, and boilermakers are male. In other fields, 98% of kindergarten teachers in the U.S. are women, 98%. Uh, Also, women are more than 97% of dental hygienists, 95% of secretaries, 90% of dietitians, 84% of HR staff, and 80% of therapists. I never never noticed that thing about HR staff, but I think basically every HR rep I've ever dealt with is female, just across the board. Yeah, it's 100% of the ones in my lifetime. And then also 99% of plumbers, 98% of electricians, 95% of exterminators, and 92.5% of airline pilots are male so that's that's tons of jobs that many of which we'll interact with day to day where it's just sort of de facto one gender, even though, like you say, there's no sign on the door, or at least there aren't now. Maybe there were before. I get that there are physical differences that would make it hard for some women to do these jobs. Uh, that is not the case for airline pilots. Right. That is not the case for exterminators. That is not the case for electricians for the most part. It just pans out that way and something you know that patients probably do not like having a male dental hygienist put their hands in their mouth that's something they want a woman to do a lot of parents are very uncomfortable with a male kindergarten teacher handling their female children there are cultural things that if you're saying well how does this tie into the subject at hand If you are the wrong gender in one of those jobs, your life may very well be a nightmare because of the cultural pressure that comes with, oh, you're the teacher? You're my electrician? One of the issues that we've had in parts of the country where they've had like coal mines shut down, where the coal jobs have went away, the jobs that are still there to do are things like physical therapist. Or working in nursing homes, like nursing type jobs is what I'm trying to say. Assistance for disabled people or the elderly. There's work in there that pays not as much as coal mining, that pays and maybe has benefits. Yeah. Getting a a tough guy coal miner to do a woman's job, a lot of them would prefer unemployment because unemployment would be less emasculating than having to admit to the guys that you're now working as a nurse. It seems like there are a lot of things we could be doing to to just make this situation better so jobs are better on people. And uh, of course, one of the first things is, like we've been saying with a lot of these things, more data. Let's have more studies. Let's know what's actually going on. Well, the big challenge of the future, because all you'll hear about right now is automation, how automation is making jobs go away. But the way we talk about it, we tend to act like one day we'll wake up and they'll say, sorry, all, all the jobs are gone. Right. And it's not, it's not going to be like that. It will take decades, 50, 100 years, and it will happen slowly as more and more jobs can be automated. And it takes fewer and fewer people to do the same amount of work. The pressure will come on the rights of the workers. 
because the threat of automation will always be out there. So as we've seen recently with fast food workers demanding a higher wage, demanding you know some sort of consistent scheduling, again, quality of life issue. Yeah. And it's very easy for the restaurant to come back and say, well, fine, we've already got a robot that can make the burgers. We've already got a kiosk that customers can use to order their burger and it just goes right to the robot. We'll just automate. And that threat is going to be employer's trump card for the rest of our lives everyone listening to this they will always have the threat of automation out there and that's the role automation is going to play for the foreseeable future is the threat of making your jobs even less reliable even less solid even more precarious than they are now because they always will be saying, well, hey, if these employees get too uppity and demand too much in the way of benefits and all that, well, we'll just, at that point, it's cheaper to just automate. Right. There has to be a baseline of what we as humans demand from our jobs, and it has to be enforced by someone to protect us from that future, because ultimately we're not building a world for robots. We're building a world for human beings to live in. So I don't care if you figured out, well, Hey, we can make all of the cars with all robots. Isn't that great? People need stuff to do. And there has to be some pushback that goes the other direction. It says, look, if you're going to ask this person to break their back for you, you owe them certain protections, even if it makes your company less flexible or you have to pay higher taxes. Right. I'm no socialist. I think socialism has a really bad track record. And I mean, the actual dictionary definition of socialism, not Obamacare was socialism, <laughs> like not the way that we've been using in the last last decade. Right. But I think in terms of worker protections, that's one place where I'm very much on the side of if you don't force that issue, you won't get them. That companies will not voluntarily give them to you because there is no workers' bill of rights. It had to be clawed out one union negotiation at a time, one law at a time that mandate you know, breaks and mandate lunch breaks and things like that. Sometimes state by state, you know, where in this state you're required to have a lunch break, but not in this state. And that's crazy, but it is a flaw in the way we built society. And it's because of the thing we talked about at the very, very top, that your work dictates everything about the quality of your life. And we won't admit it. We act like it's, it doesn't matter. Like it, it's, Oh, so what if you've got a terrible boss? So what if, if you don't know where your next paycheck is coming from, that's just your job. It's like, no, that's everything. The way we've built society, the job is everything. It, it dictates where you get to live. It dictates what kind of school your kid gets to go to. It dictates what kind of doctor you get. It dictates whether or not you get to take medicine for your chronic pain. So if we are going to live in a society in which your job is everything, then the job has to come with the same protections that everything else you do as a citizen comes with. You mentioned a great idea in the doc here about how also as consumers, we maybe need to think about how and what we consume and whether it's it's driving uh, people to be in that kind of spot. Yes, because exactly 100% of these bosses will say, hey, I'm only passing on the abuse to you that I get from the customer. 
because yeah. it's the customer who d- who demands that their Amazon package show up the same day. Now I have same day Amazon delivery where I live that it's the customer who will shop elsewhere. If we don't shave every penny off of this hamburger, that, that that's the reason we have to automate. That's the reason I can only pay you minimum wage because the customer, if, if we charge another nickel for this Whopper, they'll go next door and buy. So they will always say it's, it's the customer. The customer is more ruthless than anyone. And to be fair, if a water line breaks in my house at two in the morning and I call a plumber, like say I call a person who's a plumber, not a big company, just a guy who's in the, he, he's in the phone book. Right. Cause this is 1986. I have a physical phone book I'm looking <laughs> through for, for my plumber. <laughs> and then an enormous if I call telephone that person, to call. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If I, if I call that person, I'm going to make demands. I want them to be there at that hour. I want them to answer their phone at two in the morning. If they've, if they have 24 hours on their ad, if I shop around and call three different plumbers, I'm going to go with the one who's charging the least amount of money. I'm not going to say, you know what? In the name of solidarity with my fellow worker, I'm going to pay you more than what you asked me for. I'm going to, no, I'm going to do the same thing every employer does, which is if someone's willing to do the job for seven bucks an hour, then you pay seven bucks an hour. And you assume that if that wasn't enough, they wouldn't have agreed to take the job. And we can be very ruthless toward the people we claim to feel sorry for. And if you order an Uber on your phone and the Uber doesn't move fast enough, yeah, a lot of us are happy to wield that star rating against them or to yeah. not tip them or do whatever. We can be the harshest bosses of all because darn it, I was in a hurry. I, that the movie starts in 20 minutes. It shouldn't take you 20 minutes to get to my house. Da, 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 da. We, at no point are we going to be like, you know what? I'm glad that the Uber driver is balancing life with work. I'm glad that that, that, that he or she is not a relentless workaholic and that they did take time to go pet their dog before they they came and got me. No. So have we built a world where we are pretending to be blind to the work conditions we're demanding for me to act like, well, the money surely comes from somewhere that surely those people are doing okay or else why would they take the job? And so you're saying the same thing as the bad manager as the bad boss, but, and you can hear people say stuff like this, like, wow, they didn't want to work in an Amazon warehouse where it's 104 degrees in the summer. They shouldn't have, they should have gotten a different job. It's like, we're all in this together. (laughs) If, if their conditions improve, your conditions improve, boy, we love to make fun of fast food workers for asking for $15 an hour. And I've seen these Facebook memes where it's like, well, not even, uh, ambulance drivers make that much. It's like, okay, take it, take the thought to the next step, right? (laughs) Let's also pay the ambulance driver more let's not <laughs> let's not use that as an excuse to pay everyone less but that that snide thing was like well i certainly didn't make 15 dollars an hour when i was working fast food it's like that's right you didn't because that was the past and we're trying to make the future better than the past was because that's what society is that's why yeah. we have a civilization is to make it better than it was before at one point it was all empty wilderness 
and then we built villages and then cities. And now we're trying to build something better than that for the future. It's easy to sit around and wait for the government to come down and fix all this and set new rules. You could force a lot of this change from the bottom up. Because if you're as the consumer, you are the actual end boss. You believe it or not. I know it doesn't feel like it. But every boss lives in fear of you. Folks, that's the episode for this week. My thanks to Jason Parjan for digging with me into how jobs can work and and the entire working world that uh, so many of us will spend a lot of our lives in. I think it can be better, and uh, he thinks so too. And and why don't you make three of us, huh? Then we've got a, a trio. That'd be nice. But enough forming music groups. Let's get into our food notes, where you will find Jason's epic two-part column that, we, that we've drawn so many amazing podcast episodes, I think, that we've pulled them out of. You'll also find all of the studies that we leaned on uh, that we've got. Again, many of them European, but Europeans are people like we are. And I think it's very relevant to understanding how your job works and what it could be doing to you. And beyond that, there's also some just uh, fun things that we referenced that I, I maybe not everybody knows. I'm also linking off to Jason's Instagram. It is at Jason David Wong Parjan. Uh, I won't spell it out. You'll just see it in the text there. And he's just being very fun on there. There's also inside stuff about his novel writing. I don't know if you know that he's a best-selling novelist. I really hope you do, and I hope you check out his books. And uh, he posted about how the revision process used to work technologically, which is a uh, Pretty wild. I'm glad the post office is reliable. You know what else is reliable? My enjoyment of the Budos Band, because they're an excellent music group with a new album out called Budos Band 5, and their song Chicago Falcon is our theme music. This episode was engineered by Sam Kiefer and edited by Chris Souza. If you love this episode, that's great. If you hated it, let me know about it on social media. That's right, social media. A thing that can slow down your productivity, or it can boost it if you like titrate out the social media the right way and use it for good breaks. I feel like social media comes up a lot on the show. It really impacts the old brain, the old noggin. And so uh, uh, think about that. Don't freak out. Just, uh, you know, treat it like a food group or something. Do you know what I mean? If you don't, listen to a previous episode that I will link in the footnotes. And if you're looking for a good uh, social media account to follow, my Twitter account is at Alex Schmitty. My Instagram is at Alex Schmittstagram. And I'm on the wider internet at my website, alexschmitty.com. It's got my email newsletter and my show dates and so much more. And I'm happy to say we will be back next week with more Cracked Podcast. So how about that? Talk to you then. This has been an Earwolf production, executive produced by Scott Ackerman, Chris Bannon, and Colin Anderson. For more information and content, visit Earwolf.com. Earwolf.